Welcome to today's episode of the Normalized Surrogacy Podcast by Surrogacy Mentor. I'm your host, Carrie Flamer-Powell, experienced gestational surrogate, surrogacy agency founder, and owner of Surrogacy Mentor, where our aim is to help surrogates match with reputable surrogacy agencies for a safe, ethical, and enjoyable surrogacy journey. Today, I'm happy to welcome our special guest, Joni Franklin of Franklin Law Office. Welcome, Joni. Thank you for having me, Carrie. Of course. So a little bio about Joni. Uh, As the owner of her own law firm since 2006, Joni is responsible for a full caseload of fertility law cases. She's based in Kansas and is also licensed in Oklahoma and Missouri. She represents gestational carriers and intended parents through the legal steps of their respective journeys, including gestational carrier contracts and parentage proceedings. So we are going to talk today about surrogacy after the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And that not not only that specifically, but also just in general, how the issue of termination or abortion plays into surrogacy journeys and what this Roe versus Wade overturning and all of the different things that are happening around that. What does that mean for surrogates and intended parents? So a lot to talk about um, on a you know a complex topic. So I'm excited to chat with you. So you. <laughs> yeah. So let's just start basic in terms of, you know, for our listeners maybe who don't quite understand, like why would termination or abortion even affect a surrogacy journey? Maybe we could just talk about um, you know, some scenarios and why surrogates and intended parents should be thinking about what laws exist and um, what options are available. Absolutely. I think that um, as an attorney that drafts and negotiates these contracts on a daily basis, sometimes when either intended parents or surrogates um, get to me in the process, they haven't even really thought about the subjects of termination or selective reduction. Um, What is sometimes not known is pretty much every single surrogacy contract, every gestational carrier agreement is going to have a section regarding when a termination of pregnancy or a selective reduction of a fetus can be requested or should be expected to be requested. And most importantly, how the parties um, reach an an agreement as far as what their intent, their belief systems, or when they would be comfortable in doing that. I always tell my clients, whether it's a surrogate or an intended parent, when we review these, these sections run the gamut. Um, I give an example. There's everything as, you know, lengthy as a 300 page novel down to a cliff notes. That's a two page um, indication. I have some parties that are the intended parents want to make the decision and the gestational carrier is that is your child. I will defer to whatever you want. I have other parties, especially um, in sections of the United States, the Midwest, that have very particular views on abortion rights, whether it's pro-choice or Mm pro-life. And we have wonderful agencies that match people with similar belief systems. So Mm -hmm. sometimes we drop those agreements that it's very, very limited, regardless of what the law is, regardless of whether Roe v. Wade stood or not. 
that there's just going to be an extremely small circumstance in which the parties would be comfortable either requesting or undergoing a termination of pregnancy. Obviously, we always put to the forefront the surrogate's health. So if there is a problem during the pregnancy that threatens her health or her survivability, we always write those into the contract that she's going to be able to make those decisions. As far as when other um, circumstances would be requested, and generally when we have a good match, it's not difficult to get to those situations. Something as a lawyer, I highly recommend that um, parties discuss a lot during the match meeting, because no matter what I put down on paper, their feelings about those discussions are always going to be far more important than, you know, what they end up signing in the contract during those, um, you know, during the negotiations. That's kind of the basics of why we have it in there. I think the good news is, is over, you know, the dozen plus years that I've been um, dedicating a majority of my career to doing assisted reproductive law, we don't have these situations come up very, very much anymore, which is the great thing. We've got the testing of the embryos. We've got um, a lot more um, either single transfers or no more than um, two transfers. So um, science itself has helped us a lot in this section. And so you're ta- you mentioned. Um match meetings and matching people with like uh, belief systems. And I think for people that may not understand exactly what goes into a match and what that means, um, you know, essentially one of the first things you're asked when you apply to become a surrogate is how do you feel about terminating a pregnancy? And the reason that's asked is because in the rare instance where there might be a condition not compatible with life or not compatible with quality of life for the baby, right? There might be a situation where termination would be the option that the parents would choose. Um, And so we always, and I say we as a former agency owner and as someone now at Surrogacy Mentor who helps match surrogates, we're always looking at making sure that if someone has a very strong belief as a surrogate about not terminating a pregnancy, that they're matched with parents who also feel that way. Even with the science that we have and the IVF clinics and the embryologists doing everything they can to transfer healthy, viable embryos, you never know what is going to happen in utero. And so can you talk about some of the scenarios where even if it's rare, um, there might be a need for a termination or a selective reduction and maybe even explain what a selective reduction is versus termination. Sure. Absolutely. So just to start off with those basics, um, a termination of pregnancy is exactly what it sounds like. It means that we are terminating um, that pregnancy from any possibility of viability. It's going to effectively end the pregnancy um, and end um, any stage that that pregnancy is in. A selective reduction is a situation where we would have multiple fetuses. So you might have twins, very, very occasionally triplets. I think in all my years, I've only had two sets of triplets um, where um, there are medical scenarios where one fetus is healthier than the other, or one fetus is not expected to be viable Um, but the other one has a very good chance of survival. Mm -hmm. So in those scenarios, um, intended parents may get um, recommendations from, uh, and usually at that point, we're at specialists like uh, high-risk obstetricians, things like that, that says, 
um, the carrier's body can only um, viably support one fetus to um, a healthy birth. And there might be something genetically wrong with the other fetus. It might not be growing. And so sometimes they're presented with the option that if we selectively reduce one fetus, we increase the viability, we increase the chances of a healthy pregnancy for the remaining um, fetus. Obviously, all of these scenarios are incredibly, um, they're traumatic. Let's just say it. They're traumatic to have to face and to hear those things, Mm -hmm. especially for people who have been on such a difficult fertility journey to get to the place where they have a pregnancy in the first place. Um, There's a reason in our industry why we call it a journey, because it absolutely is a journey. And the journey doesn't start when a, a surrogate gets pregnant. It starts we also still have incredibly rare situations, but I've had um, on a couple of occasions just rare genetic deformities, uh, mm-hmm. rare genetic abnormalities, which can result in a viable pregnancy, but ultimately the demise of the fetus at some time during the pregnancy or the child would not live any type of quality of life mm-hmm. you know, immediately after the birth. Encephalopathy is one that I've I've run into where we have um, you know fluid on the brain. They typically watch the pregnancy for a little bit to see if that um, reseals and the brain can absorb that fluid. But if it doesn't and it continues, it, it basically um, you're looking at um, essentially a, a a fetus that is brain dead upon birth. So those. Those are the situations that I've run across. Um, Those are, again, extremely, extremely rare. But when you're looking at um, whether to terminate a pregnancy or selective really reduce, it's generally those scenarios. You have some kind of um, very rare genetic abnormality or some kind of impact that's not going to have a viable fetus or not a fetus that will have a, a any quality of life after birth or some sort of medical development um, with the carrier during um, the pregnancy. They're and they're heart wrenching on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no one ever wants to terminate a pregnancy and a surrogacy journey. The whole point is to get pregnant and have a baby. There's not anyone on any side of this that wants to terminate a viable pregnancy. It's only in the rare situations where, like you said, it's necessary to save the life of the carrier or because it's incompatible with life. And I just want to mention not just genetic issues with the baby, but also developmental. You could have a perfect genetic screening and then have something happen in utero with the development of the fetus that is beyond anyone's control that could happen in any pregnancy. There's nothing inherently more dangerous about being a surrogate than there is just having your own baby. There's actually a lot more safeguards in place in terms of genetic testing and embryo quality that we're able to see. So um, I think that people need to understand that this can happen in any pregnancy, just like it can happen in a a normal non-IVF pregnancy. I also think it's really important for people to understand. I think every once in a while, there may be a crazy story out on the internet Mm -hmm. or something that says um, somebody instructed their surrogate to terminate because they're having a boy or they're having a girl and not having a boy or um, that they somehow people make those decisions based on non-medical purposes. 
And at least in my experience, I've never had that happen. I've never heard of it happening with any of my colleagues um, or, you know, to my knowledge in the industry ever. Now, if, if there's something out there that's not legitimate, I guess I can't speak to that, but I think it's very important for the public to understand that when people go into a surrogacy journey, it's a joint journey. It has a joint purpose and a joint goal and nobody's looking at anything except these devastating type circumstances when we're talking about situations with termination and selective reduction. Absolutely. It's, I did a podcast episode with Kathy Fountain about media and surrogacy and how it's, of course, always the crazy stuff that ends up in the news because, you know, that's what ends up in the news in general is the crazy stuff. But I don't think a lot of the general public knows that in the vast, vast majority of surrogacy cases, the gender of the embryo is known before it's ever transferred to the surrogate's uterus. And that's just a byproduct of the the testing that they're doing on the embryo anyway. And they can tell the gender before it even becomes a fetus. They can tell, I think it's at five days or eight days. Don't quote me. I have to ask ask my embryologist friends, but um, they can tell before the surrogate is ever pregnant, whether it's a boy or a girl. And so I would say in my experience and all the hundreds of couples that I've worked with and singles that I've worked with becoming parents through surrogacy, 98% of them know and choose the gender at embryo level. So the fact that people would think that a terminate a pregnancy is terminated based on gender or something silly, that was already determined before the surrogate got pregnant. So absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about um Roe versus Wade. And (laughs) you're in a part of the country where it's hitting particularly hard. Um in some negative, but also with some recently positive ways. So let's just talk about in general, for people that may not understand, what does the overturning of Roe versus Wade, which was the constitutional right to a woman being able to choose an abortion, now not being a constitutional right, but yet now being left up to the states, what does that mean for surrogacy? And what are we looking at in terms of options that we didn't used to have? Absolutely. So um, I call it the row woes of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, I obviously, um, as you indicated, I live in Wichita, Kansas. I'm a lifelong Kansan. I've, I've lived in the Midwest my, my entire life. Um, prior to Roe, because as we've discussed, we always had termination and selective reduction sections in um, our, our carrier agreements. We always have pretty standard, what we, what us lawyers like to call boilerplate language that at the end says, ultimately a woman has a right to choose. And um, now we, we, we no longer get to use the same boilerplate language for each state. Mm -hmm. It, it hasn't changed in a lot of states, in a lot of states, um, traditionally more blue states, traditionally um, on the coast, more populated states. Um, We have a certain number of states where it's not going to impact them at all. Right. Generally in the Midwest and the South, we've had some dramatic changes Mm -hmm. Um, and they're different in each state. So just to give you an idea, Oklahoma that I am um, licensed in, which ironically is out of my three states I practice in, the only state that has a gestational carrier agreement act, meaning it you have a statutory right 
in Oklahoma to be to engage in a surrogacy agreement. Um, And that just came about in 2019. So we have people that supported that amendment that now have voted for, um, a, we are essentially a completely abortion ban state in Oklahoma. Now mm-hmm. Oklahoma had, um, between the leak in May of the Roe v. Wade decision. And even before the overturning of the Roe, um, they passed a series in a, in a, in a matter of like three to four weeks, four different statutes. They already had what we call a trigger law in place, which meant if Roe fell, they automatically had what we call, we typically call a heartbeat bill, which means there was no termination or no abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Um, For people who maybe don't know, generally you can't even have a heartbeat or you can have negative pregnancy tests well into four to six weeks. So you might not even know you're pregnant until after six weeks. Um, But that was not enough for the Oklahoma legislature. Then they um, get basically passed the same bill before Roe fell saying um, they followed the ways of Texas saying, we're just going to preemptively do this because we think it's going to happen. Then they passed what we call, um, they passed a civil penalty statute, which was first introduced in the state of Kansas, which allows um, individuals to sue people who aid and abet in the procurement or um, participation in an abortion to be sued statutorily up to $10,000 a piece. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. And then third, they then went further now and abortion is illegal after fertilization, which is completely confusing. Um, We think the intent is obviously to uh, rid the ability of like a morning after pill or a plan B, Mm -hmm. but we also have laws in place that protect um, personage, meaning until an embryo is planted, it's still at the control of the, the owners of the embryos. So even though the embryo is fertilized, <laughs> right? Because against what the statute says, yes, we have case law that says they have control over it. Of course, that came about like when people get divorced or people pass away. What do we do with um, preserved embryos? And so there's a lot of case law saying you have to treat them um, as property and not as a person because we've got to deal with them and do with them. So it's very interesting in Oklahoma, we have a lot of protections that I I term as IVF. So the right to have IVF, the right to have a gestational carrier, all of this, but now we have kind of these abortion rights coming in. Right. Um, The, as far as the civil lawsuit in that, um, the good news is it seems to be very limited in scope. We've had the benefit of Texas having that um, same, I mean, it's almost verbatim, the same statute in place for almost a year now. There have been only two lawsuits that have been filed in Texas. Both of those were against abortion providers within the state of Texas, which have now, of course, been shut down. So we are not seeing any types of litigation for people traveling to have procedures in in legal um, states. So people going to another state to have a legal procedure, we've not seen any lawsuits for that. Even the um, statutes that are in place do not allow for the pregnant woman to be sued under any circumstances. So there can be no litigation against that. 
There are also exceptions. They have lovingly dubbed them the Uber Lyft exception, Mm -hmm. which is basically just somebody who transports somebody across state lines to get that procedure cannot be sued either. Mm -hmm. So it's meant really um, the legal intent, and we believe kind of as a legal industry in art that it's true impact is just within the state. Mm -hmm. We don't think there's a real risk. Obviously, we can't guarantee until somebody tests that of people going somewhere else to have a legal procedure done. Um, Missouri, um, after Roe fell, um, has gone to a heartbeat bill as well. Mm -hmm. They do not have a civil penalty, but there is indications that that is coming up through um, the legislative branches. And um, so we kind of expect that that might be something on the horizon. The bright spot, my home state, yay, Kansas. Yeah, um, before we talk about that, I want okay. to ask a question. So let's Absolutely. put this into real world terms for people so they understand. So let's say, so people are still going to have surrogates in Oklahoma that live in Oklahoma, right. um, especially for the reason that you mentioned, there's actually a, is it a statute? It is a statute. Okay. It's yeah. a very friendly statute. It's mm-hmm. a very easy statute. It's completely front loaded. So it, in, in a lot of ways, it's it's my favorite jurisdiction to practice in because right. it's, it's very easy um, to navigate in the legal field. And I, I think what you're going to asking is what is the reality of the impact on a surrogacy agreement in a state like Oklahoma, where there's a complete ban or a state like um, Missouri, where it's essentially almost a complete ban. Right. To and, put it into an actual scenario, you have a surrogate who lives there, who's mm-hmm. pregnant. And for whatever reason, we don't have to discuss all the reasons again, but let's just say for whatever reason, she and her intended parents have decided this pregnancy must be terminated. What are her options? Where, what, what's going to happen? The good news is the options are simple. Um, and what I tell intended parents and surrogates all the time is you will have to travel. Mm-hmm. Um, in Missouri, depending on what side of the state, you can go up to Illinois and you can still come into Kansas. In Oklahoma, you can come into Kansas, Colorado as well. New Mexico, just depending on it sounds weird for people that aren't from the Midwest. All these states are actually next to each other. Right. <laughs> They're yeah. far apart. Uh, the, the, the crux in what we are kind of watching is, um, kind of the immediate needs. If there is a medical indication, Mm -hmm. um, right now this week, the DOJ on the federal level has filed a lawsuit in Idaho because they have very similar laws to what is happening in, in Oklahoma, that it's basically completely, um, eliminated. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are small questions if there's an immediate situation. Obviously, um, they are required under um, federal provisions such as ERISA, as well as just as as doctors to um, help to cure and preserve the life of, of a pregnant woman. So obviously, if it's an extreme emergency, those people are still getting but if it's not, and if it's something that is not of an exigent manner, the answer is they will just have to travel. So I've been telling all surrogates, I've been telling all intended parents is a huge part of these legislations are a scare tactic. They're really just trying to say, if we do this, nobody can do it. But the long and the short of it is we're going to have legal viable options. And in most cases, we're going to have places that aren't too far away. Mm -hmm. But I am now working into every single contract that I write 
either in a, in a state like Missouri or in Oklahoma, everybody has the realistic expectation, unless it's an exigent circumstance where the health of, and the survivability of the um, carrier is going to be at risk, you are just going to have to expect that travel is going to be part of that healthcare decision. Right. Okay. So let's talk about travel then. Um, so now they can travel to Kansas. So why is Kansas an option? What has happened recently that well, the I'm good excited news, about, you're excited about, lots of people are excited about? So the good news is we remain to be an option. We remain. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it was about, I think, approximately five years ago, the Kansas Supreme Court made a determination that under our state constitution, not just federally, but under our state constitution, that a woman's right to choose whether to terminate or to carry was inherently a Kansas constitutional right, as well as that time as a federal right. Mm-hmm. So as um everything's percolated up as the attack on Roe v. Wade um, continued up through the federal levels. Many of the um, pro-life, or as I call (laughs) pro-birth mentality, started to look at how to change the laws. Obviously, in places like Texas, Oklahoma, and Missouri, they didn't have a similar Supreme Court case that made it a constitutional right under the state constitution. So what those people in Kansas did is they brought it up for a referendum, which means it had to be voted on Mm -hmm. to change the state constitution in Kansas to remove that constitutional right. So last Tuesday, August 2nd, a day that will live in infamy and for um, Kansans, Mm -hmm. um, everybody went to the polls to vote and they called it the value them both amendment, which basically gave the legislature the ability to um, not only severely limit, but completely eliminate the ability or restrict the ability for a woman to choose whether or not to terminate a pregnancy. Um, We are a fairly conservative state. Well, we are a conservative state. We're um, heavily Republican in nature, Mm -hmm. but it is nice to know. um, I think uh, in general, Kansans, are very practical people. I think they're very goodwill people and they can kind of see through the BS when it's presented to them. We currently have a Democratic governor, for instance, that had to be voted in by a lot of Republicans. Mm -hmm. But basically, um, in almost a two to one majority, um, Mm -hmm. we had a record turn. And this was a uh, primary. So it wasn't even a general election, which was, was fundamentally selected because... Um, the people wanting to pass this new, the smaller the turnout, the more they could turn the base and probably get this passed. Right. So we had Kansas turned out, um, uh, just to give you an idea for the primary, more than triple the number of people that normally turn out and more than double the last largest turnout in the state of Kansas for our primary. And we had people standing in line for hours. We, it, it, it was really an incredible sight to see. And it was incredible for people just to understand that you cannot, um, in, in such a highly personalized circumstance, you cannot say no to people who have critical health issues or, um, rape or incest or which is what basically Oklahoma has done and what they were trying to do in Kansas. So in essence, this, 
the citizens of Kansas agreed with our state Supreme Court that it's a constitutional right. And so we have preserved the ability to have um, free act, well, not free monetarily, but access to legal abortions um, up through it. They do have to be completed in the state of Kansas before the end of the 21st week, which has been the case, um, you know, pretty much always. But um, that seems to be safe and secure. And um, the people that are on our Supreme Court hopefully will be maintained. And um, we have that same court. So we're very proud of that. We're very excited and we're hopeful that that will give hope to other people who may have referendums coming up, even in very conservative, more red Southern or Midwestern states. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's a really big deal for those that don't follow the politics of it closely. It's a really big deal. And it's it's about so much more than abortion or termination. It's about rights to your own health care decisions. And in this case, the healthcare decision of intended parents and surrogates. And um, that adds a whole other layer of complexity to that decision. Um, But it's about rights. And you, like you said, you can't tell someone that they can't do what's right for their health or the health of the child, um, particularly in situations where the pregnancy, it doesn't apply to surrogacy, but in, in particularly in cases where pregnancy was not something that the woman or child or teenager wanted. So um, that's amazing for Kansas and surprising and of the best way possible that it it went that way. And like you said, I think it does give hope to other states um, that they can do the same thing there and hopefully they will. So what are some final thoughts that you have for our listeners about um, surrogates and parents and what they should be thinking about as they ponder these um, topics in their surrogacy contracts with their attorneys and the questions or maybe the things they should be thinking about um, and planning for. Absolutely. I think in this uh, post-real world, uh, probably my biggest um, closing comment would be that of optimism. I know that it's very scary, one, for an intended parent or a surrogate to even contemplate the necessity or um, the concept of having to terminate a pregnancy or to do a selective reduction. That's always going to be inherent, like you said, in any pregnancy, whether it's a surrogacy or it's not. But I don't want people to shy away from having great surrogates that they match with that, you know, they're in love with that are going to be healthy, viable options for them, especially in the Midwest, just because there may be unfriendly abortion laws. Mm -hmm. There is very easy ways to work around that. I do think um, this is going to be an area that's going to change across the map over, you know, the next several years. But the silver lining or the shining hope is it really has had little to no impact in Texas. If I talk to all of my Texas colleagues where all these things have been in place for almost a year, mm-hmm. I can tell you in Oklahoma, it has not had an impact. I have not had um, any judges looking differently. We have the statutory protections in place. And again, in Kansas, and I'm very proud of my home state, um, we have uh, as an electorate um, upheld that woman's right to choose um, in those circumstances. So I I think my biggest advice is it may sound scary. Take a breath, 
-hmm. talk to your agency owners, talk to your, your surrogate about those expectations, and then talk to an attorney, because I think what you're really going to find is at the end of the day, it may involve some travel, but it's not going to impede your journey. And it's not going to make, force you to make decisions that, that the row following the road, that Dobbs is going to change your ability to make those decisions. We may just have to change how we write the language and we may have to have some travel involved, but absent that, in my opinion, it really has little impact on the surrogacy industry or your ability to have a journey and still include those provisions in your contract. Right. Absolutely. And I think I would add to that. And I say this every time we're talking about surrogacy contracts or the legal process, um, you need to be working with, and I say this to parents and surrogates, you need to be working with an attorney who has experience in the (laughs) practice of surrogacy, that they understand all of the complexities of surrogacy and contracts and parentage. It's not okay to use your cousin's brother's sister's social security lawyer or divorce lawyer because they might be a thousand dollars cheaper. It's just not, you need to have someone who understands how exactly how surrogacy works in your state and what all of those um, particular statutes or laws or processes procedures mean it's super important or you could end up in a really bad spot legally. I, I would just like to chime in on that a hundred thousand percent. And I think as intended parents and surrogates, um, you, you need to rely on agencies and mentors um, in, in helping assist you to find an attorney. And especially for intended parents, like you said, to try to, to shave off a few dollars, that's not where you want to do it. Mm-hmm. I have found if I get semi, um, and it's a small group of us, especially in the Midwest, when you mm-hmm. get to the coast, there's there's more fertility lawyers. Right. But there literally are a handful of us in the three states that I practice in. I mean, there's probably, I could put in a couple of the states on one hand, less than five that do this. And if you get a divorce attorney, if you get somebody like that, um, even if you think you're saving money, you're probably not only not saving money, you're probably adding months onto your journey. You're probably Mm -hmm. adding um, a lot of heartache and discontent. Um, one of the things that a good fertility attorney, a good um, agency, a good mentor can do is to establish those that trust between the parties that you need. And nothing will go, make it go south faster than if you start arguing in over negotiations in a contract and people's right. feelings get hurt. And so it's very important to be with a professional who understands collaborative law. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of collaborative law, you know, surrogacy is one of those and someone that understands the law and what needs to be in the contract. I've gotten a few contracts in for independent matches where somebody's caring for their sister and they take it to their divorce attorney. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this has 80% yeah. of what it needs is not in there. So, right. and trust and your agencies and your mentors know they work with us all constantly on a constant basis. And I would recommend at least deferring to them until you can meet that attorney. Obviously, it's a personal choice. If you meet that attorney and you don't like them, then go back to the agency and get another name. But please don't go online and just click to somebody that charges not much an hour because it's going to be a heartache for everybody. (laughs) 
And I don't want, I don't want a bad case in our courts that we're trying to fix because people don't know what they're doing. So yes, absolutely. Awesome. Well, it's been so great chatting with you and it's nice to have a little, little beacon of positivity in this post role world. And surprisingly it happened in Kansas. So yay. That's amazing. Very proud. Very proud. Well, thanks for having me on, Carrie. I really appreciate what you're doing for our industry as well. I think it's important to get these educational processes out to the public. And you are our beacon of hope. And I really appreciate you doing all that you do. Oh, thank you. That's so sweet. I I enjoy it and I'm happy to do it. So thank you. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Normalized Surrogacy Podcast by Surrogacy Mentor. I'm your host, Carrie Flamer-Powell. I want to again thank my special guest, Joni Franklin, for joining me for this chat today. Be sure to check us out online at surrogacymentor.com. If you're interested in knowing whether surrogacy is right for you, take our easy two-minute quiz to see if you qualify. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to learn more about gestational surrogacy and how to have a safe, ethical, and enjoyable surrogacy journey. Talk to you next time.